Amen. I am grateful to be here this morning. We have a wonderful pastor, a patient pastor, uh, maybe a crazy pastor. I don't know that he's willing to let me speak this morning, and I'm grateful for that, brother. Thank you. Nothing more intimidating than having a man that you admire uh, sit right in front of you as you try to teach the Word of God. And uh, But it's okay, brother. I want you to stay there. Totally fine. Totally fine. I am so blessed, though. I want you to know that. Um, that, that he's, brother, you didn't have to move. I enjoy looking at your face. He's a good-looking pastor, too. Amen. All right. Well, well, there is some big budget and finance meeting this, you know. Anyway, I'm just grateful to be here. I'm thankful to be a part of this. I want to invite you for a moment at my breakfast table. And if you, if you grew up in, in uh, anywhere in the parts of Georgia, you, you probably experienced what breakfast tables were like in the mornings. That when I grew up, our breakfast table only consisted of really one meal, and that was cereal. Uh, that might have been Honey Nut Cheerios. For me, it was Lucky Charms. But it typically consisted of cereal. Now, that wasn't because my mom didn't love me. It wasn't because she didn't like to cook. But it was because she was a hard-working factory lady that was up early in the morning. Her breakfast considered, uh, consisted of two Excedrin and a cup of coffee. And some of you probably experienced that in your journey in life as well. But I always had a bowl of cereal. This morning, I, I just want you to begin to think about us being at the table together. Because the table is very significant, and we'll notice that in a few moments. The table becomes significant in our lives because it's an important place where we gather. It's a place where relationships are built, where meals are shared, where celebrations happen, where encouragements take place. So I want to invite you this morning to my table, as we look at God's Word. And in particularly this morning, I want us to, to begin to look at the heartbeat that Christ had. Christ was for the community. Christ's life, Jesus, as He roamed the earth, as He shared the gospel, as He lived to please the Father, community was changed. The people around Him were impacted. And so this morning, I want to give you the title... The, the key point, whatever you want to take away from it, and it's very simply this. The church has the challenge to catalyze the community for Christ. I'll say that one more time. The church has the challenge to catalyze the community for Christ. I've been thinking about our community a lot. To be honest with you, I started coaching uh, rec soccer not long ago, just a couple of years. Uh, something happens when you have daughters. I've learned this recently that they like their daddy to coach them. And then all of a sudden, when the rec department finds out that the kid likes for you to coach them, they realize, i got to coach. And so you get put on the radar, and then you get the phone calls. And all of a sudden, you're coaching soccer and probably other things as the kids get older. But one thing that I've noticed while I've coached soccer is that there are people in our community. There are people in our community. I, I know that may be profound for for me, it's probably nothing for you, but I've realized over the last couple of years, there are actually people in our community that don't know me and that I don't know. There are people in our community, some that don't have Christ, don't have hope. It seems as though that I'm seeing people that are hurting physically, people that are hurting emotionally, people that are hurting mentally, people that are hurting spiritually. And, and the burden has, has been greatly enhanced by the climate of apathy towards the church by so many. And again, I may just be uh, 
seeing this on a much larger scale because I'm talking to 18 to 25 year olds quite a bit. But one thing I've come to learn recently is the church has the challenge to catalyze the community for Christ. That word catalyze might, um, might strike you as an interesting word. Uh, it's one that I, I thought through, one that I wanted to use because it's very significant. In this context, it means alter significantly. The church has the challenge to alter significantly the community for Christ. Not to just make a little difference, but to alter it significantly. Think about that just for a minute. The church has been given this challenge by Jesus to infect the community in such a way that it is altered significantly. And you know what? We don't have to do that. We get to do it. It's a blessing to us. The stakes are great. People's lives are at stake. The reward is huge. I want you to notice what Bill Hybel says in his book, Courageous Leadership. He says, I believe that only one power exists on this planet that can transform the human heart. It's the power of love, of Jesus Christ, the love that conquers sin and, and wipes out shame and heals wounds and reconciles enemies, patches broken dreams and ultimately changes the world. One life at a time. And what grips the heart every day is the knowledge that the radical message of that transforming love has been given to the church. And that means in a very real and significant way, the future of the world rests in the hands of local congregations like ours. It's the church or it's lights out. And without church so filled with the power of God that they can't help but spill goodness and peace and love and joy into the world, depravity will win the day. Evil will flood the world. But it does not have to be that way. Strong, growing communities of faith can turn the tide of history. He says, don't bother looking elsewhere. The church is it. So the church is what transforms our world and our cities and our society. The church has the opportunity to make a significant impact, to alter significantly, to catalyze the community. It's been done before. We read about it this morning. Brother Bill shared with us a a text in Scripture. When the church first began, they completely changed the world in a short time. As a matter of fact, looked at some figures with me, right? The beginning of Acts records 8,000 conversions within a span of weeks or months. And and, and probably that number is more near 10,000 or 15,000 because that number is equated to just men that were converted. And so the results of this kind of life-changing community, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it speaks of 3,000 converts in one day. Acts chapter 2, verse 47, it says, Each day the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says, 5,000 more converts in one day. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, The believers rapidly multiply. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says, The number of believers greatly increased. When the church acts and lives the way God intended, growth becomes contagious. So how can we do this? That, that was the question that I have been battling the last couple of weeks. I've spoken with some of our young adults. I've spoken with some of our median adults. I've spoken with some of our senior adults the last couple of weeks. And I've, I've processed this question, how can we impact significantly our community? And, and as we look at the example of Acts chapter 2, We have to ask the question, how can we make FBC a church that changes 
our community. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to those that had need. And day by day, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This morning, I want to share three simple things that I have gleaned from this text. And as we share those things, I want to remind you, we're at the table together. We're, we're living life. We're having conversation at the breakfast table together. Some of you having a cup of coffee, me having my lucky charms, a couple of us maybe eating an apple. Who knows what you do at the breakfast table. But together this morning, I want you to notice three things. Here's the first, first one. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Here's the first thing. We need to share in the study of the Scriptures. We need to share in the study of the Scriptures. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I simply mean. We need to be devoted to learning alone. We need to be devoted to learning Scripture on our own. To be in a place, whether it's reading the Bible daily, whether it's reading good books that that take us through Scripture, or listening to good preaching via technology. By the way, you can go to our website and you can listen to any sermon that the preacher preaches on a given Sunday and pick it back up. We, We have venues and avenues that we can continuously be devoted to learning alone the Scriptures of God. But then secondly, we need to be devoted to learning together. That word devotion is is not a word that we use a lot in our contemporary language because 18 to 25, 18 to 30, 18 to 40, we don't understand devotion. We, we get commitment because, you know, things have to be done, but devotion is a whole other element. It's the sold-out uh, following of something. It's the heartbeat that says, I'm not doing anything else because this is necessary. We need to be devoted to, to learning together the Scriptures. Brother Russ would appreciate that. That we ought to be devoted to small group Bible study, plugged in, connected to the Scriptures. Hebrews 10, verse 25, says, Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another as the, as the more as the day is drawing near. We need to make Bible study a habit together. Opening up Scripture. Processing life. You say, how do we know that's important? Well, look at verse 46 here in Acts chapter 2. It says, And day by day, attending the temple... Together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Day by day together. We need to share in the study of the Scriptures. Here's the second thing that I've kind of picked up from this text. And this is one, this is a text that's familiar with us. We, we read it a lot. Maybe we overlook a lot of things in it. But here's the second thing I want you to see. We need to cherish the children of God. We need, to, we need to cherish the children of God. We need to look at each other as faithful followers of Jesus Christ and cherish one another because we understand how difficult it is to live a life of faith day by day. 
if anybody understands, it's the believer. And so we ought to cherish one another, knowing what we're facing, knowing the struggles we're going through, knowing the failures that we face. We need to cherish one another and encourage one another. Verse 44 here in Acts chapter 2, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. In common. That, that's the key word there. The common ground that we as believers find. Some of us make more money than others. Some of us have more family than others. Some of us drive different cars than others. We work different places. But at the end of the day, a believer in Jesus Christ who has been born again has common ground that they have found salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for no other reason, we should cherish one another. That key phrase, all things in common, is, uh, is so important. It's, it's speaking to the idea of sharing. The idea of uh, caring for one another. Uh, yesterday, I had the, the joyous blessing, brother, of having Willow's uh, eighth birthday. And, and an eighth birthday party uh, for a little girl turns into about 40 people at your home. And in those 40 people are mixed in some family, some older friends, because my kids think that they're college kids, and so they have to have some college kids over for their birthday. But then there's this mix of like 15, 7 to 10-year-olds at your house. This was my first experience. I'm probably grayer today than I was last week. It was an insane day. And, and every time I turned around, there was a crowd going, this way. And then they would play with something, and then this way. And I just found myself just getting confused. But I listened to some of the conversations, and Willow got a little baby, one of those lifelike little babies for, for her birthday. And when you've got 15 little girls around and one baby doll, that's a problem, you know? And, and so all I hear all afternoon is, Willow, can I hold the baby? Not yet. Willow, can I please hold the baby? Just a minute. Willow, can I hold the baby? Well, wait a minute. She wanted to. Here you go. I mean, it was just nonstop. It was hard to figure out how to share. It's so difficult for us, isn't it? But the fact of the matter is we share things with the people that we value. One thing I realized real quick last night was that Willow has a lot of little friends, but you don't, you don't have to look very far to find a friend or two that she really likes because that's who she usually shares with first, right? Here's my Skittles, right? Oh, just a minute. You know, there, there's always that, that one or two that's easier to share with because we find value in them. Finding value in other believers allows us to cherish the children of God. So what does it look like to cherish the children of God? Here's, I just want to give you a quick couple of thoughts here. We cherish God's children when we validate the worth of others. When we validate the worth of others. Galatians 6, 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We cherish God's children when we appreciate them. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Always be thankful. We cherish God's children by caring for them. John 13.35 says, Your love for the world will prove to the world that you are my disciples. We cherish God's children when we protect the unity of the body of Christ. Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another with showing honor. We cherish God's children when we encourage them. When we encourage one another to continue the fight. To go out and make disciples. To make it through the grieving process. 
We cherish God's children when we encourage them. Ephesians 4, 29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We need to cherish the children of God. But then, this morning, lastly, so to speak, by the way, brother, I'm, I'm using one of your techniques, a couple of short points, but I'm going to hit them with a long third point, right? Just been learning, that's all. But here's the third thing I've noticed here in this text. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I want you to notice something significant about this passage. Brother Bill brought it up. The the title in most translations will say, The Fellowship of the Believers. But here in verse 47, we notice something a little different. The text almost opens up a little bit more, not to just those that have been living in community because of what they've been drawn to with Christ, but it says that they uh, praised God and have favor with all the people. And it says in that moment, day by day, the Lord added to those that were being saved. I want you to remember what, uh, what Peter wrote about the heartbeat of Jesus. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should re- reach repentance. The heartbeat of Christ, that, that all may know who He is. So how, how do we find this moment? Here, verse 47, when, when we have favor with all people, I guess I need to give you the third point. We need to find favor with the faithless. We need to find favor with the faithless. You see, it's, it's one thing to dig in and study God's word. That changes the tone of our lives. And, and then understanding that believers have a common bond, a common ground, that Jesus has tied us together and we should cherish one another. But then thirdly here in the text, we see that, that somehow we should find favor with the faithless. Follow me here momentarily. I, I, want, I want you to kind of to do your best to, to, as they say, put some Jesus goggles on with me just for a moment. Steve Parr, who, who works with the Georgia Baptist Mission Board, has, has recently been a part of a, a project entitled Pivot Points. And it's an e-book that has been sent out across uh, the state of Georgia to different ministers. But, but in his book, Pivot Points, I want you to notice what he says. He says, The typical Georgia church has a number of ministries and programs focused on a variety of age groups. They, they have a comfortable worship space, plenty of parking, and clean preschool areas. Upon arrival, most guests will say that they are greeted and welcomed with smiling faces, the Sunday surfaces are most often meaningful and fulfilling to all that are present. There is nothing wrong with anything in that description, but the churches that are thriving do everything mentioned plus prioritize reaching out to the community. Parr goes on to say the activities were located at the church and the focus was the church building and the church property. Yes, anyone would be welcome if they came to the church, but that is the problem. They would have to come to the church. Thriving churches make every effort to highlight the time when the congregation is gathered on Sundays, 
But they are even more focused on the time that the congregation is scattered into their neighborhoods during the rest of the week. I have been profoundly impacted by some of our churches in our association. Just last week, I had a church come to the soccer field on a Thursday evening with a wagon full of snacks. And they sat on top of the hill with a big sign that said, here's some snacks, we love y'all. And people would come up and grab a cookie or grab a water or grab a whatever, and, and they asked, what, what are you doing? And they simply said, Jesus has called us to love our community. We love you. Profoundly impacted. The high school, a couple of weeks ago, several students, not our students, from another church outside of our county, showed up with dozens of donuts went to their classes and began to hand out donuts. And the students were like, why are you selling these? And the kids that brought the donuts said, we're not. Christ has called us to love our peers. We love you. Churches making impacts in their community. Have you ever wondered what Lamar County thinks about our church? Have you ever begin to think about that? I have. Uh, in fact, recently, uh, when I first began thinking about this question, I I thought surely everyone in Barnesville knows all about First Baptist Church. Almost 200 years old. Is it 2025 that we're celebrating that? Just around the corner. 200 years. I'm only 38 years old, bro. That is a long time. I began to wonder, what does the community think about our church? And so as some of our young adults were discussing this question, my friend Alan decided to do this small experiment by simply asking some folks in our community and after just simple conversation, seven in fact, I was convinced that we need to ask more. And so for today, we've compiled some information gathered in just a hundred conversations in our community, just miles from our church. And here were the three questions that we asked. Do you live in Barnesville, Lamar County? And if so, how long? Could you tell me how to find First Baptist Church? Barnesville. And if they answered yes to that question, we followed it up with a third question. What do you know about FBC Barnesville? So this morning, you've noticed there's a lot of water bottles here. There's a hundred water bottles on this table. Each one represents the conversation that was had this week with an individual. In fact, on top of the water bottles, their name is written on the bottle. And as we compiled this information, we wanted to signify the conversation with something, something unique. And, and some of these bottles, first of all, I, I want you to know that most of them had a story. This one, in fact, was Elijah. Elijah said he knows where the church is. He went there one time as a kid. This one is Ashley. Ashley lived in Lamar for 19 years. And she said, yeah, I know where First Baptist is. And she began to describe the church. It's that white church that's right across from the library. Doesn't sound like First Baptist to me. This one represents Jatravian. Jatravian has lived here for 10 years in Barnesville, in the city limits. Said he has no idea where First Baptist Church is. This one is Debbie. Debbie's only lived here for three weeks. 
She said, no, I don't have any idea where the church is, but I need the church's prayer. Don't know what she's going through. She didn't go into detail. She just said, I need prayer. As we begin to have conversation after conversation, the conclusion caught me off guard. Of the hundred people asked the first question, do you live in Barnesville and Lamar? All but five said yes. Ninety-five people. Oh yeah, I lived in Barnesville five years, ten years, fifteen years, thirty years. Now obviously that's not unexpected, but the next ratio surprised me, it'll surprise you. Of the 95 that said they live in Barnesville, only 35 of them could explain how to get to our church. Right? Doesn't that that amaze you? Like, is it really that hard? It's a big building. (laughs) Just look, right? Only 35 of the 95 could explain how to get to the church. But out of those 35 people, only 25 had any comments at all about the church. But now out of that 25... They had encouraging things to say about our church and about our ministries. But the one thing that I want you to process with me this morning is that positive or negative, good or bad, every church has a reputation in their community, whether it's good or bad. Thriving churches consider the time when the congregation is scattered as important to the outreach and ministry of the church as the time when the congregation is gathered in each Sunday. So the realistic problem, according to this Pivot Points article, is that current trends show a decrease in the number of people regularly attending church services as well as a decrease in the frequency of attendance of church members. All of this reminds me and reminds us that we must find favor with the faithless. But how do we do that? Remember our point this morning, that the church has the challenge to catalyze, to alter significantly the community. So my question for us is, who is at your table? Who are you inviting around your table? Who are you having conversations with? Who are you living life with? Who have you invited to sit at your table? The family gathers at a table for dinner and for conversation. Tables seem to serve as a nurturing place, a place for conversation, a place for celebration. We like to be at the table with our people. As a child, we like to be at the table with our friends. As a teenager, we need to be at the table with the cool kids. As adults, we often sit with those we're most comfortable with, those that we feel like we see eye to eye with. But have you ever took a minute to ask the question, who was at Jesus' table? The social life of Jesus got him into trouble. His social life created a lot of controversy. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, it says, And Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Scott, Scott McKnight, professor in the biblical and theological studies at North Park University, notes that the kind of people Jesus hung out with were looked down upon as second-class citizens by the Pharisees. The people Jesus hung out with were people of the land. They did not know the law. They were common people. But Jesus invited all people to his table. Luke chapter 14. I just want to read this uh, with you real quick. Luke chapter 14, 
Verse 1, it says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? They could not reply to these things. You see, there is room for all kinds of people at God's table. Jesus made it clear to his host that all people should be invited. All being inclusive, not exclusive. Religious leaders would not think of inviting the poor, the crippled, the lame, or the blind. But Jesus made it clear he doesn't wait for people to come to him. He goes out to them. Who have you invited to your table recently? There's a story that that has been passed around in the church community from time to time about a pastor that was heading to preach at a conference and he had to take the red-eye flight into the city and the plane landed around 1.30 in the morning. He hadn't had anything to eat for dinner so he stopped by the local Waffle House to get him a little breakfast and as he was eating his breakfast he noticed a crowd of women that had come into the restaurant around 3 o'clock in the morning. And you know, uh, I speak of this crowd of women, women that, that were scandally clad and, and were making a living doing things that, that weren't necessarily honoring to God. And as they were having conversation, this preacher overheard one of the girls say, it's my birthday tomorrow. And as they were having the conversation, she made the comment that she's never had a birthday party before in her life. As that crowd of women left, the pastor looked over to Harry, the owner of the worker there at the restaurant, he said, Harry, do these ladies come in regularly? Harry said, yes, every night around 3 o'clock, these ladies come in to the restaurant and have their meal and then head home. And he said, Harry, I'd like to throw a birthday party for this young lady tomorrow night. Harry, so excited, said, I'll make sure that I have a cake for her. And so word got out somehow in the underground of that community, and the very next night, the preacher and Harry were sitting there at the restaurant at 3 o'clock in the morning with a birthday cake. And many folks had come from that community. As this young lady walked in, they began to throw this birthday party for this young woman. Tears. She, she asked Harry, can I, have this, can I take this cake home with me? Nobody's ever given me a birthday cake. She rushed out of the restaurant with her cake, heading home, joyful. Not knowing what to do, the preacher looked at everybody else and said, I guess we just need to pray right now. He prayed for all those that were in the restaurant. When he was done praying, Harry, the guy at the restaurant, looked at him and said, I didn't know you were a preacher. He said, yes, sir, I pastor a church. He said, well, any church that will love somebody with that kind of compassion, the church that I want to be a member of. You see, it's important that we find favor with the faithless that we don't look down to them, but we look at them as somebody. Here's what might be significant for us this morning. According to the data that was produced by the Mission Insight Group doing the Quadrinian Project through Georgia Baptist Mission Board, don't worry about all those names, just know they did some research. There's some 18,000 people in Lamar County. Take a deep breath with me. 18,000 Of those 18,000 people, just over 9,000 identified themselves as evangelicals. That's about right. Over half our community profess believers in Jesus Christ. 
Several others were listed as Catholic, Jehovah's Witness, Congregational Methodist, and so on. But the big stat for me was that over 6,000 people in our community identified with no religious choice. They didn't just simply check the other box. They made the conscious decision to identify with none. 6,000 people. Can I just share with you, 1% of that population would be 60 new people at church. 10% of that population, all of a sudden you've got a mega church on your hands because that's 600 more people in our community. You know, one of the lies that I've bought into in our community is there's just probably not anybody else out here that needs to know who Jesus is. But the truth is, we're overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with it. Here's what I mean. Here's our church. I told you we were going to be at the breakfast table this morning. That represents our congregation, our community, us, the 400 or so that gather weekly for worship. This represents the 6,000 people in our community that said, I don't identify with religious things. That's not all of them. Now, there's still more. And if you will notice this with me, it's very significant. The amount of people that we can find favor with for the gospel. I want you to go back to the water bottles with me. Remember, 33% of the 100 people asked actually knew where the church is. It is the will of God that we open up our homes. It is the will of God that we open up our tables. It is the will of God that we open up our hearts to one another and that we intentionally and proactively embrace believers and potential believers who are racially, ethnically, generationally, and socioeconomically different than us. I want you to remember the heartbeat this morning. It's not that we've done anything wrong. We don't have to do this But we get to do this. We get to find favor with the faithless. But here's the difficult moment. Now we have to respond to God. I want to invite you to be a community like the early community in Acts. That while they were praising God, they found favor with all people. And when they did that, the Lord began to add to their community the number of those that were being saved. I want to invite you to process this week who might sit at your table. Will you go out and seek someone and love them well for the purpose of making Jesus famous? I also want to invite you this morning as a time of invitation when the service is over to prayerfully consider coming down as you're heading to Sunday school, as you're heading out for the day, to take a water bottle. A water bottle that has already been significantly separated because it has a specific name of someone in our community. And to take that water bottle and begin to pray for those names. And let it be a physical commitment to pray for the individual and to take a step forward for the faithless. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I pray that you change my mind about life in Barnesville, Georgia. 
that these hundred people that we talked to, Lord, would matter. That these 6,000 people that, that somehow said, I don't identify with religion, that you would help us find those people and throw some birthday parties. Love them well for the sake of Jesus Christ. And this morning as we have the challenge, the opportunity to step forward and to make a physical commitment to pray for somebody in our community and to love them well, would you give us courage to do that? Alter our lives so that we might catalyze the community. <laughs> I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.